ESMO 2023 has been nothing short of a blockbuster series of practice-changing events, paradigm-shifting trials, and controversies like no other. Today, Michael and I will be exploring the world of colorectal cancer. You thought we might have missed it, but I promise you we have lots of brilliant trials to discuss with some sad outcomes for some and some really exciting futures for other. Michael, thank you for joining me on our quest to cover every single cancer stream known to man. How are you? I'm good, Josh. I think it's adorable that you seem to indicate that I have a choice. I just have to rock up here because Josh tells me to, everybody. Uh, no, but <laughs> no, but I'm I'm very good. And yes, a blockbuster conference this has most certainly been. Why don't we get started without further adieu? And I'll start with my first study, if you will permit me, oh great, master of this podcast. Amazing. Let's try and minimize those edits. I'm very happy for you to start. I might eat my mango while you talk to us about <laughs> Folfox Siri in the TRICE randomized trial. Let's rock and roll. So the TRICE study is a comparative study of cetuximab plus Folfoxiri versus cetuximab plus Folfox in RAS wild-type patients with initially unresectable colorectal liver metastases. The background to this is that this is actually a not uncommon clinical entity, a patient who has uh, an initial presentation of colorectal cancer with isolated nodal and oligometastatic deposits in the liver. There are several centres around Australia and around the world with very capable, very experienced hepatobiliary surgeons, and so some of these patients are potentially resectable, and most patients will have a period of chemotherapy, quote-unquote neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as it were, to try and maximise the R0 resection rates. Michael, would you say this area, this area of colorectal cancer is a bit controversial? I would say it's more than a bit controversial, Josh. I would say that there is no universal consensus which for oncologists is very stressful we love having universal consensuses about pretty much everything but yes this is a very controversial area this study tried to uh, tease out what the best perioperative regimen was for this cadre of patients the comparison between doublet chemotherapy and triplet chemotherapy with a biological agent in this case cetuximab was concocted 146 patients were enrolled, with the key inclusion criteria being RAS wild-type metastatic colorectal cancer with unresectable liver metastases aged between 18 and 70 and an ECOG performance status of 0 to 1. The hypothesis was that the triplet arm would increase the response rate from roughly 60% to 80%. Patients were stratified according to the primary tumour location, left versus right, and the technical resectability and what we mean by that is patients who are technically unresectable versus resectable with greater than or equal to five metastases. The primary endpoint was the overall response rate, and the secondary endpoints were the depth of response in patients with at least one scan to assess efficacy, the R0 resection rate, the PFS, and the OS. And of course, when you're, whenever you're dealing with chemotherapy, you've got to think safety. In terms of patient characteristics, these were broadly balanced between the two arms. The majority had a left-sided primary colorectal cancer, and most patients had synchronous liver metastases. 
the majority had greater than 10 metastatic deposits, 41.7% in the triplet arm versus 33.8% in the doublet arm. Straight to the results, Josh, we're not beating around the bush here. So in terms of the primary endpoint, the overall response rate in the triplet arm was 84.7% compared to 79.7% in the doublet arm, with a p-value, unfortunately, of 0.43. So it was not statistically significant. There were no complete responses, which I guess even though we love seeing the occasional complete response with novel agents, chemotherapy, the likelihood of a CR is very low, so that's not surprising. However, partial responses were present in 85 and 80% of patients in the two arms. Secondary endpoints, the depth of response was numerically greater in the triplet arm at 60 compared to 55%, and this was statistically significant, but again, you are adding a lot of toxicity for a relatively small numerical gain. There was no difference in the median progression-free survival. In fact, the triplet arm actually did a bit worse, with a PFS of 11.7 months compared to 13.4 months in the doublet arm. The R0 resection rate was identical at 51.4% in both arms. In the safety aspect of things, there were higher rates of neutropenia with the triplet arm, as one would expect, and higher rates of diarrhea in the triplet arm as well. So you're adding toxicity with very little additional benefit. So to conclude, it's a good idea, Josh, don't get me wrong. And it is a question that I think we've actually asked on this podcast before, whether the intensification of chemotherapy in this resectable uh, group of patients actually improves outcomes. And this study is suggesting that it doesn't with the comparable overall response rate, higher toxicities, and no difference in the progression-free survival or the R0 resection rate. There's no overall survival data just yet, but we can probably read between the lines and see how this is going. So if you have a resectable, uh, a potentially resectable patient with metastatic colorectal cancer, doublet plus cetuximab is probably your best bet. Which also stands to reason that if you're able to have a less intense chemotherapy regimen with fewer toxicities and similar survival rates, you should definitely look into that as soon as possible. I do wonder if there are subgroups that we still don't know about that will do better. I suspect we might never know, but that's just always in the back of my mind. Absolutely. And I would be interested to see if there's any data comparing left versus right going to be difficult with this particular study because as mentioned 90% had a left primary so you're going to have small numbers of patients with right-sided primaries but right-sided colorectal cancers tend to be the nastier ones and so maybe they benefit a bit more from intensification of treatment these are all questions that will need to be teased out in future studies but josh why don't you try and illuminate whether nivolumab plus relatlimab has a niche in the neoadjuvant treatment of MMR-deficient colon cancer with the NICHE 3 study. Michael, you're getting better with your terrible puns. Your time to... I've been learning from you. Yeah, your time to becoming a dad will be coming far sooner than you realise. <laughs> so, Michael's right. We're going to be talking about the NICHE 3, and if that rings a bell, there was a pretty pivotal NICHE 2 study as well that I think came out last year. The background to this story is quite prolific. We know that MMR deficiency is one of the best predictive biomarkers for immunotherapy response in colorectal cancer. It accounts for about 15% of these cases and they generally will respond exquisitely. 
what we know is that recurrence rates in this cohort is pretty high with 20 to 40% of this cohort that are stage three recurring on standard of care therapy. So we need better effective therapies. The NISH 2 study showed neoadjuvant ipilimumab plus nivolumab, so that's a PD-1 inhibitor, plus a CTLA-4 inhibitor, had a 95% major pathological response and a 67% complete pathological response. So pretty, pretty shiny numbers right there. And we also know that in melanoma world, nivolumab plus relatlimab, which you might have heard of in, in the, uh, the sphere of oncology, is a LAG-3 inhibitor supposed to sort of up up titrate or, you know, increase the effectiveness of immunotherapy, showed a favorable toxicity profile and promising efficacy in melanoma, Michael. The study design, it was an investigator initiated, which I always love, non-randomized multi-center study. So it's an earlier study. The inclusion criteria, the patient had to have resectable, previously untreated DMMR colon adenocarcinoma had to be localized without metastatic disease. And they were looking for people who had higher risk disease. So people with at least T3 and node positive. The strategy of this or the schema, I would say, of this trial is actually really easy. You have your baseline. You then have two cycles of immunotherapy, the nivolumab plus relatlimab, and that's every four weeks. And then you have to have surgery Slip of the tongue, Michael. Your first immunotherapy, you had to have surgery and then they had follow-up. So everyone received two cycles and the study design, a little bit complicated, but there was a Simon 2 stage, they called it. You had to have at least 15 out of 19 patients responding and you needed to, in stage one, for them to then continue to a stage two, which is a cohort expansion of 40 additional patients. Looking at the patient characteristics in the sort of mid to late 50s, 37% of patients had T4 disease and 74% had node positive disease. From a safety perspective, pretty good, Michael. Everyone underwent surgery. So the 19 patients, everyone got there. 100% had the uh, had R0 rates, meaning they had complete resection and it was well tolerated. This is not the safety. These are the, these are the results. But what they saw is that 74% had grade one, grade two adverse events. And most common were actually infusion-related reactions with 21% being grade one and 11% being grade two. There was one grade three immune-related adverse event and that was hypothyroidism. Let's move again to the results. I kind of, you know, just wanted to, Keep it, keep it a little bit spicy. The pathological response was seen in 100% with a major pathological response, which is less than 10% of viable tumor tissues under that microscope in 89% of patients. They saw a complete pathological response with no active cancer cells in 79% of patients and a partial pathological response in 11% of patients. You might be, Josh, that's 160%, but remember the complete Complete pathological response would fit into the major pathological response criteria. So don't worry too much about my maths. It's better than I lead everyone to believe. Our maths isn't that bad. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Mikey. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Uh, the, the median interval was about 7.4 weeks from initial immunotherapy to surgery, and no patient received adjuvant chemotherapy, understandable because they had a major pathological response. But in conclusion, This is a pretty exciting study. 
I need bigger numbers. I say this as like my my go to line. It's like I'm I'm Robin, you're Batman, and that's like we need more we need more patience. Holy early phase study, Batman. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Holy, holy inferiority complex. I'm Robin. The, this area was well tolerated. There were no surgical delays. Look, they're accruing for this sort of expanded cohort, and we're going to be updated in 2024. And you know, it's an exciting thing. I think it's a bit difficult to compare it to the previous. Ipinevo because it wasn't the same kind of treatment, um, but it was higher than that prior cohort. So the question is, do we need the ipilimumab in these cohorts of patients? You know, is the lag three going to come along and kind of sweep ipilimumab away from its throne? And will that then expand to other tumor streams? I think we have to wait a little bit to find out. How did I go, Mikey? I think excellently, Josh. And it is interesting. I am very excited for the days of neoadjuvant immunotherapy for patients with MMR-deficient rectal cancer and colorectal cancer. I suspect our surgical and radiotherapy colleagues are less excited because it means there'll be fewer patients. But this is a relatively small subgroup. And if we can, number one, reduce toxicity because pre-existing chemo rads is pretty difficult to tolerate for some people. And if we can reduce the rates of surgery and increase the rates of organ sparing, that's never a bad thing. Very, very true. And Michael, I think you're exceptionally capable and I might give the next, (laughs) we've got to stop this. I think it's spiraling, but the next trial you are definitely going to just be a whiz bang at, but it's called the capability See what I did? Capability yes. O1 yes. study. It's a phase two, but <laughs> well, interestingly, the CAP of capability is capitalized. So I read it as the capability. It might be capability. You've yeah. also probably look really good in hats, but yeah. Yeah. Tweet, it's tweet. just another feather in your cap, Josh. <laughs> exactly, Michael. I'm going to be quiet. So the Capability O1 study or Capability O1 study is a phase two clinical trial of Cintilimab plus Kidamide. That's C-H-I-D-A-M-I-D. And yes, we did check the pronunciation for that. Combined with or without bevacizumab in patients with MSS or PMMR, metastatic colorectal cancer. So we've talked about the MSI high DMMR patients. This is the patients who unfortunately don't qualify for immunotherapy. And that was one of the main rationales behind this study was actually finding a way for cintilimab, which is a PD-1 monoclonal antibody, to be used in patients with PMMR or MSS colorectal cancer who do represent the majority of patients. So the background, the combination of immunotherapy, various combination agents have been demonstrated not to improve outcomes with immunotherapy in PMMR patients. There is promising data from combining immunotherapy with a histone deactylase inhibitor or HDAC-I and PD-1, PD-L1, specifically in the lymphoma area, but there is a limited efficacy of this combination in solid organ malignancies. So the Capability O1 study is investigating the efficacy of combining Cintilimab with the HDAC kitamide with or without the VEGF antibody bevacizumab in patients with PMMR unresectable, locally advanced or metastatic colorectal cancer. Now, you're probably asking, Michael, what on earth are HDAC, HDAC eyes or HDACEs? I'm sure you could spin uh, that in. It's HDAC inhibitors, Michael. Well, I was going to get there, Josh, if you would give me a moment. So histone deactylase is a relatively newly identified target 
that plays important roles in epigenetic or non-epigenetic regulation of cell functions, including death, apoptosis, and the cell cycle arrest. In cancer cells, inhibition of HDAC is theorized to improve disease control and potentially increase the efficacy of immunotherapy, hence this trial. So key eligibility criteria for capability 01 was an ECOG of 0 to 1, the appropriate type of metastatic colorectal cancer with preserved uh, mismatch repair, adequate organ and bone marrow function, progression beyond or intolerance to at least two lines of systemic therapy with no prior HDAC inhibitor or PD-1, PD-1 antibody, which you would expect if they are proficient in their mismatch repair. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive the doublet of scintillimab ketamide or a triplet of scintillimab plus ketamide plus bevacizumab. The primary endpoint, I was interested in this, Josh, it's the PFS at 18 weeks, which is seems a little bit short, to be honest. I, I am surprised that they had a uh, 18-week PFS rate as a primary endpoint for this study. Yeah, it's, it's a bit interesting, isn't it? And I don't really understand why, but maybe they were worried. Historically, HDAC inhibitors have been used across the board in multiple cancer streams and haven't really shown much benefit. So I wonder in a, in a, you know, at least two lines of systemic therapy, maybe they're worried that the patients will progress too quickly. Maybe they wanted to sort of have an early follow-up to see that they can prove there is some activity to kind of expand it. I'm wondering if that's kind of the direction they've headed in. Hmm. So maybe they've just set smart goals where they're achievable and they're not I, trying I to overpromise. Because, so. you know, um, the, if you look at the third line in colorectal cancer, it's Lonserf and Generally, it's trial first and then LONSERF if you can't be on a trial. Hmm. Secondary endpoints for the study was overall survival, overall progression-free survival, overall response rate, disease control rate, duration of response, and safety. In terms of patient characteristics, there were 48 patients enrolled in total. The average age was mid-50s. Most patients had left-sided colorectal cancer. 50% had liver, lung, or lymph node metastases, and 50% were RAS or RAF wild type. In terms of the primary endpoint, 42.6% of patients had not progressed at the 18-week mark, 17.4% for the doublet arm versus two-thirds, 66.7, for the triplet with a p-value of 0.0012. This equates to a hazard ratio of 0.43. The median PFS was 7.3 months, which is not bad for heavily pre-treated colorectal cancer, Josh, compared to 1.5 months in the doublet arm. So at this point, Josh, the doublet is not looking like it's coming out top trumps. It's looking like that bevacizumab addition might uh, have a bit of a synergistic effect. Yeah, it might. I think it'd also be very interesting to have a look and see whether bevacizumab was used in the earlier lines of therapy. And I think that might influence our discussion point so while this is an abs not an abstract it's a five minute presentation you know potentially exciting especially given all the hdac failures that i've seen in the past but also very sort of reserved josh is coming out reasonable josh yes i think that this is really where oncology is is going to at least not every study not every lab not every paper can put forward a new and exciting target, but it's really about 
trying different combinations of older targets and seeing if we can crack that. In terms of the secondary endpoint, it's more of the same. The overall response rate was higher in the triplet group, 44 versus 13%, with a p-value of 0.02. And the disease control rate was 72% compared to 40% with a p-value of 0.04. So fantastic for the triplet, less so for the doublet. In terms of adverse events, these were, as is always the case in any of these trials, almost universal, with greater than grade 3 adverse events occurring in 30% in the doublet arm and 52% in the triplet arm. Most common adverse events of a grade 3 or higher were thrombocytopenia occurring in 43% of patients in the doublet arm and 72% in the triplet. Proteinuria, 60 versus 72%. Interesting that it's so close, given the effect that bevacizumab can have on that. And neutropenia, 26 versus 60%. So yes, better response rates, but significantly higher toxicity, which in these group of patients will be a consideration because they tend to be a little bit more frail the more we've flooded them with chemo. So to conclude, the combination of kitamide, centilimab, and bevacizumab had a high 18-week progression-free survival in this group of patients that had failed standard chemotherapy. Acceptable safety profile, I would like to see more data on the exact breakdown, and obviously in a bigger study as well, so we can get a more accurate sense of the incidence rates of various toxicities related to this treatment. And this is coming. There is further exploration of a triplet combination coming in the Capability 02 study, so we look forward to that with bated breath. Josh, that wraps up this, our first colorectal episode. Much like breast cancer, we couldn't squeeze all of the stuff we wanted to talk about into one episode. So we do hope you'll stay with us tomorrow for more colorectal cancer extravaganzas. The peristalsis is strong in this series, Michael. So let's we'll see you all tomorrow. Absolutely. It's going to be colon blastingly good. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com.